that internal torment that I'd lived with since I was a child. I took these drugs and it was gone in an instant. But then on the other side is that it becomes bigger than something that you can control, which you don't know when you first take the stuff, that this is actually going to take over my life. Welcome to Are You Mental, a podcast about mental health. Today we're talking all about drug addiction and the mental health side of addiction. I'm pretty happy with who I got to talk to in this episode and I'm looking forward to introducing them to you. I must admit, when I started off making this episode, I wanted it to be about drug addiction as opposed to alcohol addiction, but I realised very quickly that that's an unhelpful distinction to make. Alcohol is, of course, a drug, like any other. It just happens to be legal and more socially acceptable. Having said that, this episode will focus less on alcohol, and I may well do an alcoholism episode in the not-too-distant future. Can I just say on a personal note that it's been a real thrill putting the first three episodes of Are You Mental out into the world. Thank you so much for those of you who have taken the time to message me and say how much you've enjoyed the show. It really does mean a lot. As you listen to this episode, bear in mind that I found these two people through an organisation called Narcotics Anonymous, so they talk a fair bit about NA and the 12-step way. And I'm aware that that's not the only framework for recovery from addictions. Now, I usually try to keep the language pretty clean on this podcast, but there's a handful of well-used F-bombs in this episode that I just thought it would be a shame to remove. But there is a clean version of the episode there if you want it. It just doesn't have an episode number attached to it. Okay, that's enough of the admin. Let's get on with it. First of all, I'd like you to meet Susie. Yeah, I've been living on the planet for 71 years and I've got two daughters and three grandchildren. She's an impressive woman with a cheeky glint in her eye and a really colourful life story, including a decade-long drug bender going to every country imaginable. In fact, some of her story makes train spotting look like Pride and Prejudice. She spent most of her 20s and 30s in active addiction to a cocktail of drugs. When I asked her what she thought the root of her addiction was, she traced it right back to her early childhood. When I was a little kid, I felt really out of place and deeply flawed. And I uh, look at those feelings, I can see um, guilt, shame, fear, anxiety. Even as a kid? Yeah, yeah, as a kid. I was living with that and it looked to me like everyone else knew what they were doing and I didn't know what I was doing. Anyway, lived like that, uh, feeling really out of place. And um, when I um, was around about 14, I was at this thing and I had some alcohol for the first time. It was this tragic drink. It was vodka and this kind of awful orange cordial. It's called Screwdriver. And something happened in that moment. And I felt connected and okay with myself for the first time in my life. Just boom, like that. I didn't ever forget that feeling. I didn't know until that point that it was possible to feel different to the inside stuff. Can you explain the inside stuff a bit more or describe it? Fear and anxiety, shame. And I felt like I was deeply flawed. And the thing is, right, I knew I didn't fit in because I'd been adopted into a family. So I knew that and I thought that's what it was about. And sort of fantasised about one day, you know, the mythical parents would come and get me and I would belong somewhere. Because I'd always had a sense of waiting for something, right? Mm. I was waiting for the parents to come and everything would be okay. 
And then I was waiting to be discovered by Hollywood and I was waiting to be uh, the knight in shining armour to come and take me away from all this. You know, the hundred years sleep and the prince comes along and kisses the princess awake and then, boom. Anyway, I found the kiss awake when I had that glass of screwdriver. By the time Susie was in her late teens, she was drinking every day and had her first blackout at the age of 18. She took up smoking weed and moved to Australia, where she started dabbling in amphetamines and magic mushrooms. And don't forget, this was in the middle of the 60s. I was working in King's Cross and living in King's Cross and the Vietnam War was on. They'd have a plane load every few days of young American soldiers, most of them who'd never been to a city as big as Sydney before, and they were in the cross with all that money. They brought heroin over, they wanted cannabis and they wanted LSD. So we were there basically to um, give them a good time in that six days they were on R&R. You know, ended up in um, strange rooms and strange beds, waking up in the morning and thinking, where the fuck am I? And whose ceiling is this and who's that beside me? Um, it was a very messy time when I think back. When you look back at that, do you think, because there's almost an element of those stories that seem kind of romantic or, f- or fun, do you look back and think, oh, that was fun? Or? Yeah, it was. It was fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a crazy time. And I was living in a house in Rushcutters Bay with a whole bunch of my friends. We were all having a lot of fun. And is, was there a downside to all that? Well, the drugs were still working, so it was fun, yeah. In the middle of all this, Susie got into a relationship, got pregnant, and returned to New Zealand to have the baby. I drank through my pregnancy and I smoked dope through my pregnancy every day. Then I had a little girl and I went off um, impulsively to Australia. Back in Australia again, Susie started going out with another guy who got hold of something that was about to change her life. One day he said to me, um, oh, look, I've scored some heroin. And a whole bunch of us this one night snorted some of the heroin. And what happened for me in that moment in time, I saw this neon sign like that. I can see it now as I'm saying, and it said, this is it. It was pink. And um, that's what I'd been waiting for my whole life. The next day I went out and bought some. Now there was about 10 of us in that room that night. Two of us went out and bought some. I was thinking, what's their problem? Why aren't they interested? They said, yeah, we had a good time, but so what? As she said, Susie went out and bought some heroin straight after that experience and took it the very next day. And the next day, and the next. Pretty soon, opiates in the form of heroin was by far her drug of choice. With the weed and the, and the LSD, it was very much, you know, that idea of a spiritual search, sort of create an expansion and the opiates um, sort of bring it in and, you know, get very okay with just being here. You know, don't need anything or anyone else. Probably felt safe for the first time in my life that I'm okay with who I am, absolutely okay with who I am. All I need is this. Heroin took Susie on a massive journey. Hearing her tell me about the next decade of her life made me wonder why no one had turned it into a movie. I'd love to share all the crazy stories with you, but it would take a whole hour, and this episode is not actually about drug taking. But I think it's worth doing a short montage of some highlights. And to do this, I think we need some appropriate music for a drug fueled romp around the world. 
And then we went to Thailand, of course, heaps of heroin in Thailand. Then we went to Calcutta. What I decided there was I'd take some hash into the UK with me, and I just thought, oh, I'll just put them undies couple of big blocks and I was just about to get on the plane and they said come over here. She was patting me down and I thought fuck, as in fuck. And I thought this is it, I'm in India, I'm in jail. And then someone spoke to her, she turned her head away and didn't go between my legs. Wow. I know. So we flew into Bali and we've been taking this really strong LSD and we thought oh I know what, let's take a thousand trips in and then we can sell that and that'll pay for the holiday. A thousand trips into Bali. Chris had gone off to drop off some acid to some people who all of a sudden he turned up with two cops. Yeah exactly. We were withdrawing, full on withdrawing. Withdrawing from? Heroin. First time ever. We were so sick. What was it like? It was bloody awful. I took that heroin into England, I know, and I had it in the back of some speakers, which was really dumb. So they said, what have we got here, kind of thing. And then one of our friends started breaking into a chemist shop. So there was cocaine, there was pure British pharmaceutical heroin in there, there was pethidine, there was palfium, all the benzos, there was all the barbiturates. A whole freaking chemist shop full of those drugs. So of course, you know, started taking those. So that really was just a taster of what Susie got up to in that decade of her life. It didn't include the opium dens of Calcutta, the dodgy deals in Thailand, or that one thing I'm not allowed to include because she hopes to return to that country for a holiday one day. Now living in the UK with Chris and her daughter, and still heavily addicted to substances, life got a lot more difficult for Susie, and the wheels really started to come off. Chris died. He overdosed from a chemist bust. I'd started breaking, entering into houses, stealing from department stores. Things were getting very freaking out of control then. After Chris died, my friends came and got me, really. They had a fundraiser here for me. and uh, To get you back here? Yeah. And then two other friends from Darwin who'd got married, they were going on their honeymoon, so they came to London and got me and Alyssa a passport and got us on the plane and got us home to New Zealand. Wow. I know. Amazing, eh? Forever grateful. Back in New Zealand, Susie got pregnant with her second daughter. She was born um, dependent on methadone. It was pretty bloody awful. Things were unravelling more and more and, you know, the drugs had stopped working. I started having panic attacks. I couldn't manage the emotions with the drugs. I was looking more and more unconscious on the outside and yet on the inside I was screaming out. And I'd also sussed out that um, there were half a dozen people in Auckland getting an opium tincture script. Some of them from the old Chinese opium addicts from Grey's Ave and so that was my goal in life was to get onto the opium tincture script. And I knew that if I did that all my problems would be solved. You can inject it and it's opium. The case manager I had, she started introducing the idea to me, why don't you go into treatment? And I was going, no, 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 I don't need it. I just need the opium script. Started having panic attacks, freaked me out, didn't know what that was. And then I got sacked from my job. So things all unraveled really quickly like that. And I was there and I was saying, Marie, I need that opium script. And she said, okay, you go to treatment and you complete the treatment, and if that doesn't work for you, you come back here and we'll talk about that opium script. Mm. So I went to treatment. 
I went to um, Queen Mary Hospital, which is in Hannah Springs. And uh, a few days later, I woke up in a bed surrounded by people. And what had happened is I'd had a fit because of alcohol withdrawals. I didn't know about alcohol withdrawals. I didn't know that they're really dangerous. That gave me a hell of a fright, actually. So they started detoxing me there. And one of the things that they made us do was go to 12-step meetings to NA and AA. We had to go. That was all there was to it. And they were going around the room and they were saying, you know, hi, my name's Jock and I've been in recovery for seven years. And I thought, what? And then other people were, they were saying three months, six months, you know. And I was listening to their stories and I heard people talking about the isolation, the fear, the anxiety, the shame and the guilt. And I can remember my ears just went like that. And I thought, oh my God, I'd never told anyone about that inside stuff. And I thought, ah, oh, I'm not the only one. Although Susie was having some insights at the 12-step meetings, she was still feeling terrible from being off the substances. She even tried her hardest to escape rehab and get hold of some drugs. I realised with deep sadness and massive grief that I was too munted to go and score. And at that point I just went into my room and I lay down on the bed. I was at the lowest ebb and I went, please help me. I can't do this. And then I felt these two hands on my head like that, coming from the back. And then I woke up the next morning, and that was the first time I'd slept through the night in years. Anyway, I went about my biz, and I was over at the OT building, and the sun was shining through the window, and I realised I hadn't picked up my 8am Valium. And I just freaked and thought, oh my God. And um, I got over to the nurse's station and said, oh, I forgot my 8 o'clock Valium, can I have it with the 12 o'clock one? And he said, certainly not, you can have this one. And then the next day, around about the same time, same place, I realised I hadn't picked up the 8am Valium and I thought, I feel okay. I'm just going to see how long I can go today without picking up the next one. And that's the last time I used. Wow. I know. The last time. Yeah. And yeah. that was over 30 years ago. February the 14th, 1987. And I didn't know until later when I looked back. It's Valentine's Day. Yeah. What an amazing gift of love. <laughs> yeah. So that's Susie's incredible story up to the point where she stopped taking drugs. She's still got some great stuff to tell us about addiction and mental health. But before she does, I want to introduce you to Anton, who you heard at the very beginning of the episode. He spent a section of his life in active addiction with meth. And like Susie, the feelings that ended up fueling his addiction started at the very beginning of life. The first feelings I remember, like from when I was three, was anxiety. That I was looking out at the world and afraid of it. And as I got older, um, that feeling became um, more intense as an unhappy 15-year-old. You say unhappy, what, what way? Um, depressed, mm. um, introverted, and um, gay mm. during the 1970s. Yeah. You know, when there was nothing, there was nothing that told me that this was okay. There was no hero parade, no pride parade. And also, I knew that it was a deeply shameful thing. And then the first drug I took was kind of during that period, and it was a pinky, which my cousins 
cousin gave to me. What's a pinky? A, a pinky is a psychiatric drug. I remember it making me feel slightly kind of fuzzy, but I felt like I'd crossed a bridge that I wanted to cross. So that was the kind of very early periods. And then coming out of that and coming out, then I kind of hit the gay scene with a vengeance. Mm -hmm. And that was the kind of party drug period. Mm -hmm. So when I first um, started going out was lots of acid, then E landed and speed. When I look back, I mean, I didn't think it was a problem at the time, but it certainly was. You know, I got beaten up. You wake up in the morning with the black eyes and very little memory of what happened. At the time, what did the drugs provide you? Well, it took away all the feelings that I described, the unhappiness and the isolation, um, gave me more social confidence. And in terms of the class A's, like the E's and the acid, um, just made me feel really amazing. But then on the, um, on the downside was the coming down and then I'd feel kind of really wretched mm. and kind of um, feel even worse than when I started. That kind of behaviour probably went on for 10 years. Wow. Hi, it's Mick here. I hope you're enjoying Are You Mental? As you can imagine, making this podcast is a pretty time-consuming pursuit and I often get asked how people can support the podcast. So what you can do is go to GoFundMe.com and search the words, Are You Mental? That's GoFundMe.com and search, Are You Mental? Okay, on with the episode. Looking back, do you think it was addiction then? Yes, and the addictive passions were that I would take it and not be able to stop, Hmm. or only stop when I fell over. It's kind of out of your control was out of my control and I didn't realize that, that at the time I just felt like I was living my best life but it was controlling me I wasn't controlling it and then I um, moved cities moved to Wellington and Wellington is a real party town and I remember realizing that for the last month six weeks that I kind of used speed every weekend and I remember kind of registering it's like oh fuck actually that's every weekend this is becoming a problem And then suddenly we couldn't get hold of speed anymore and, you know, the dealer said, but I've got this and you need a pipe to smoke it. And that was um, meth. And and that's when I think it really took me into the depths of my addiction. Meth did? Meth did, yeah. So I was using more regularly and I was losing jobs, not paying rent. Um, If it was in the house, I was going to use it and I was going to use the whole lot. Mm. I'd feel like it was calling my name. And how would you describe the feeling that it gave you? I felt invincible, clear-headed, socially really much more extrovert and um, I thought fun. Mm. Actually on reflection I was probably a pain in the ass. (laughs) So it was like the complete opposite of my resting state of being this anxious, depressed introvert. It Mm. took me right out of that. That's why I liked it so much. And, you know, I mean, that's the thing is that we take these drugs and in a way we're kind of uh, self-medicating. But it doesn't fix the problems, it makes them worse. And you don't realise that until you have a crisis. Speaking of which, do you want to share a crisis that you were brought to? Okay, so I was just a disaster waiting to happen. So I crashed my car one night, the police arrived 
they found drugs on me and, you know, I was breathalyzed, all that sort of stuff. Was arrested, had to go to court. I mean, I just felt like all the wheels really fell off and I just felt absolutely insane. Like to the point where I thought, I'm just going mad and what if I stay like this? And I remember one day, um, like not being able to get out of my room, just spending like 12 hours walking around in circles in my room, too afraid to get out the door. So I knew at that point, right, okay, I, I can't touch class A's. And then it was another year after that before I realized the same about alcohol as well, that actually, if there's a bottle, I'm gonna drink it. I can't just have a glass, I have to have the whole bottle. So that was the kind of the end of the road. I realized that even though I was clean from drugs and alcohol, that I needed to explore addiction as an issue. Mm. And that's how I found my way into Narcotics Anonymous, the 12-step way that gave me um, a kind of a toolbox to manage my life. And it really helped me understand that addiction was much bigger than the drugs. It was an illness that I needed to understand the addiction that lives in me that I inherited from my dad. Can you talk more about that, the illness of addiction? What attributes does that illness have? Well, the symptoms are that, you, um, that you're obsessive-compulsive. There are certain things that are, once you start, you find really difficult to stop. The most obvious kind of manifestation of that is drugs and alcohol, but take that away and it'll, you'll see it in other parts of your life. So for me, food is an issue. Mm. I know that I'm a kind of a binger purger. Sometimes I find it really hard to stop eating. It might be the internet or social media that I find it really hard to stop. Uh, money's a big issue for me. I'm definitely an overspender. I can be a shopping addict. So it can kind of act out in lots of ways and that's the inability to stop something. I think as addicts we're a little bit more um, self-centered and self-obsessed. Mm. So we tend to take things very personally. So quite sensitive? Very sensitive, hypersensitive I would say. I think that we suffer from low self-esteem. I think that's the core of the disease. Uh, wanting to control everything, control freaks. Um, maybe it's connected to our overall fear of life. So then we try and control things, control outcomes. As you can tell, through the recovery process, both Anton and Susie have gained a whole lot of insights about how addiction works. But let's bring in an expert who actually works with addicts every day. This is Grant Foster. He is one of New Zealand's leading addiction therapists. And one thing that gives him an edge in his work is that he himself is in recovery. You know, I went to prison for, for aggravated robbery and that because of drugs. Yeah, I fell, I fell in love with drugs. I started by asking Grant what addiction is. The definition of addiction, the one I like, is the inability to consistently control the amount of substance that you use or the consequences of the actions as a result of using it. And the word I like is the inability to consistently control. The substance tends to control you, your thoughts, your behaviours. I, I believe that an addict is born that way. And I believe it's the first substance or behaviour that a person gets a sense of connection or enjoyment from 
that they start becoming addicted to it, it sort of fills that gap. So many people with addictions will be very good at sport, at school, or, or studious, or have some sort of compulsive behaviour. And then as that starts to subside, as they get a little bit older, then they start to bring substances in around 12 to 15 is when people will start to use. The core belief of the addict is I am worth less than other people, that they're not good enough. This idea of shame really does seem to come up a lot when it comes to addiction. It took me a year being in a meeting to take my eyes off the floor and say much more than, hi, I'm Susie, I'm an addict. And if I was asked to share, I felt so sick with shame that I couldn't say much more than my name. I just kept going though, and I had the hope that things would change because I could hear people talking about how that had happened for them. So that, that guilt and that shame and that fear that you talk about, that, that drugs took away, obviously without the drugs, what happened to that? How did you deal with that stuff? It's a slow process really, um, learning how to live with the discomfort. In those days I felt good or I felt bad, right? I wouldn't have been able to identify in a feeling if it had bitten me on the ass, you know. And, so, and then um, women aren't allowed to feel angry and sadness is okay, anger's not okay, um, joy, well, couldn't feel joy, could feel fear. Susie kept going to regular NA meetings, and the values of that community started to seep into her everyday life. I learned that no matter what was going down during the day, as long as I hadn't picked up, I was having a successful day. Mm. And I'd never been able to tell myself in my whole life that I'd had a successful day, and that's a very strong message, isn't it? And I started working through the, the 12 steps, you know, you write them and, and you read them out loud, you know, which also does is a shame reducer. Because shame separates us, right? And then it lives in the dark. Mm. And so once it starts sort of telling the story and the sky doesn't fall on my head and someone else hears it and they say, oh yeah, I did that. Something happens, something very powerful happens because a lot of the fear and anxiety and shame was about if they really knew who I was, then they wouldn't love me. People will know that they're all okay and I'm a deeply flawed human being. So what started happening was the insides and the outsides started matching up, you know. I became much more easy in myself. And then learning not to be afraid of feelings, because I was terrified of them. So to be able to be recognise a feeling as it arrives and to recognise it for what it is and know that feelings arise and depart and they're here to tell us something and then they do their thing and they move on and to just take care of it and acknowledge them. To learn how to do that, I don't need to take drugs. That's what I took drugs for in the first place. But I don't need to do that because um, I'm not afraid of that anymore. You're okay with feeling the feelings? Yeah. And you say that with a big smile on your face. <laughs> yeah, because I ran. I was a runner internally and externally my whole life, and that's what I was running away from. I was so fucking afraid of being alive. I was spewing when people brought me around from an overdose. Mm. Yeah, I wasn't afraid of dying. I was afraid of living. Hey, everyone. Sorry to interrupt the podcast like this, but I was wondering if I could pick your brains for a second. At the moment, I just make this podcast off my own back, with no funding, which, realistically, is probably not sustainable. 
Now, I'm better at storytelling than fundraising, so I was wondering if you might be able to help me out. Who do you know or what organizations do you know of that would like to fund a podcast that gives people a working knowledge of the major mental health struggles and increases people's acceptance of those of us who struggle with our mental health? If you've got an idea or two, you can email me on mick at areumental.com. That's M-I-C-K at areumental.com. Cool. Let's get back to the show. We're going to pick up from me talking to Anton about a TED talk I'd seen by a guy called Johan Hari, who said that the core part of addiction is about not being able to bear being present in your life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because our resting state is self-loathing and anxiety and fear. So we're wanting to escape that. And where do those feelings come from? I think it's part of the disease. I think it's the core of the disease. Hmm. The thing I hear most commonly from addicts is I, I always felt like I never fitted in. Yeah, and I think that that is our common starting point. We've come to the point in the episode where I'm just going to start cutting from one person to the other without introducing them. But you should have a good idea of who's who by now. I thought I'd ask Grant, our expert, about that relationship between addiction and shame. Intertwined. So shame is, I'm a bad person. Guilt is, I did a bad thing. Hmm. Addicts are riddled with shame. In fact, shame is the emotion, I believe, that has to be dealt with and come out for your head to go up. And within um, treatment, we, we actually get people to talk about their shame, those experiences that they don't want to tell anyone about. And when they do, they will get a physical relief from their body. They will feel that come out and their head will go up. Your shame is what keeps people in addiction. When you say their head goes up, what do you mean? I actually mean physically, their head will go up. They will start looking around and noticing. Mm. Whereas an addict walking along, they will be looking at the ground. Their head is down, physically down. Wow. Yeah, yeah, they will actually feel a relief. They will feel lighter. What's happening mentally during addiction? Okay, what happens even now is that how I feel in my head is that my head becomes a more and more constricted, obsessive space. Mm. And one of the things that's kind of a red flag for me is when I start ruminating over things and I can't stop ruminating. Mm. I just get in this little cycle of, I made a mistake at work today. I wish I'd said this and that and then I start replaying it on my head. When I'm well, that's fine. I can kind of recognize that and choose not to listen to that. Mm. But when I'm less well, I can't, I can't break the circuit. That's what the drugs did, was they broke the circuit. Interesting. It might be anything like, I really want that jacket, and I just obsess on it, obsess on it, obsess on it, until, um, until I, I, I treat the thought or I buy the jacket. <laughs> and the problem is, <laughs> on the downside, it's like taking drugs. The downside is, if I buy the jacket, I risk sort of toppling over into shame and guilt mm. after it. Mm. So that's what I would identify as the the kind of the addictive passion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me about the physical side of addiction. The physical side of addiction with drugs is just really craving that drug, getting that drug, and then wanting more and more and more. Mm. And the pattern is still present with me, like I said, in other issues like 
food and shopping. And in all this I was thinking before is that um, it's not all bad. If you manage all of this energy, you can use it in really positive ways. Addicts can be extremely high achievers because we're really driven and really focused. Um, we are prone to introversion and being sensitive, but I think that that makes us very empathetic people. Mm. And I think also that we become very skilled and good at managing relationships. Once we treat the illness and learn to live with it, we can use those things for good as well. If, for example, tomorrow I discover that someone in my life is struggling with addiction, what's the best thing I can do? Listen for what we call change talk. So rocking up to them when they're wasted and say, look, you need to stop, they'll probably punch in the face and never see them again. Mm. But if you hear them say, look, oh, I'm getting so sick and tired of this, oh, I wish I could stop, just a little bit of change talk, mm. that's when you'd say, why don't you go and talk to these people? Have a number on hand or somewhere where you could take them and say, look, I know that, you know, CADS has a clinic between 10 o'clock and 1 o'clock every day. You can just walk in there and go and talk to somebody about it. It's really just listening for that little moment of clarity that they have where they're thinking, oh, I'm sick of this, you know, I want to do something. So we love with detachment. We love them enough to detach a bit from their problem so that they have to find their own way or, or let them sink to where that they've had enough. And then we're there to support them. But if we're enmeshed and trying to fix them and control them, and it just doesn't work. Yeah. You love the person enough to let them suffer for a while until they're ready. And then when they're ready, you say, look, this is what I know. Can you think of anyone who responded to your addiction that you look back and you're really grateful for? Yeah, the woman at the methadone clinic, Marie, she was very compassionate. She told me that I was a good mum. I didn't believe her. I do now. I never forgot it. I hear people say no regrets and things like that, and largely I don't. And uh, if I could change anything, it would have been the stuff around the kids. Kids get caught in the crossfire of addiction. They're powerless in an adult world. They grow up in unpredictable families. You know, is it going to be Santa Claus or the big bad wolf? You know, we have the family kind of, you know, laughs about things now. And um, when I was saying to them one time, Amy just said, look, Mum, it's okay. We're really proud of you. Just be a really good grandmother. Yeah, I had the opportunity to be that grandmother. If someone struggling with addiction is seeking recovery, what options are out there for them? You really need to talk to somebody about it and whoever that might be, it may be a family member. Sometimes family members aren't quite the best to talk to initially because they're so emotionally involved, they can be you know, angry or hurt or whatever it might be. Mm. Uh, talk to your doctor, absolutely talk to your doctor. They can make referrals to services depending on how severe the substance use disorder is. Uh, you can access treatment centres yourself, uh, self-referral, just Google uh, drug and alcohol rehab and that will bring up services within your area. The Community Alcohol and Drug Service is in all the centres. Uh, it's called CADS. It's a free service. Uh, they have groups and counselling and 
psychiatrists, psychologists, counsellors, everyone available. Mm. Um, there's Lifeline, uh, the crisis team, there's mental health services, all those are free services. I mean, you know, the police will help you, even though you may not mm. want to talk to them, but they will certainly guide you towards the right services. I will um, suggest they go to 12-step fellowships. I sometimes take them to their first meeting. I see the people who continue doing those things that their life changes the most and they get years and years of sobriety. The ones who tend to pull away from that tend to relapse. The thing is that it's about connecting. You need to be with people who understand how you're thinking and feeling and what you've been through because you know, I'll say we've all been through the same thing really and um, I know how someone's feeling because I would have felt that way. Talking to these guys, another thing that came up time and time again is that at the heart of addiction is a search for connection. That's what happened to me that first time I felt connected when I had that drink. And um, that's what I loved about the drugs. So you felt connection to what? To myself and others. Mm. That you hadn't felt before. Yeah. And you know, the thing with heroin was like, boom, that was it. That total connected, warm, I am absolutely okay with myself and you. Mm. That's connection. But my use of substances, which used to be my solution, became the problem because they were causing the kinds of things that they, they took away in the first place. The shame and the guilt and the anxiety and the fear mm. and the loneliness. Tell me about the healing that often needs to take place in order to recover from addiction. So the internal change is, and I say this to my clients and myself, I am not responsible for being an addict. I was born this way. I am responsible for treating my addiction when I realise I am an addict. So I have to take full responsibility for my actions and my behaviours and start working from that. So I am responsible for that. So the process to um, recovery is, first off, is just a detox. People have to spend some time to get the substances out of their system. And depending on what kind of substance it is, you're looking at anywhere from eight days to three to four weeks. Then the second part is people generally will engage in some sort of service. I haven't seen that many people successfully stay clean without being involved in some form of organisation. There needs to be a link. People have to link in with something. Many methamphetamine addicts will say, I've got to go to the gym and I've got to eat right and do this. And then they keep falling over because they haven't got what we call that spiritual solution. Mm. So the spiritual solution is based on realising that there's a there's just a greater energy around that you can source to awaken your own inner energy and start practicing behaviors like tolerance and patience and understanding and honesty and kindness and open-mindedness and willingness. These energizing parts of us that get us linked in and connected and doing things and being productive in our life. And is that partly because in addiction often there's feelings of loneliness and isolation, yes. but when you connect in, there's a sense of belonging and connectedness? Yes, that's absolutely correct. I truly believe that. I mean, I get many clients who don't want to do any of those things and want to do it by themselves. And I say this, if the person had cancer 
and I wrote out a little script that if you go along to this meeting and if you do these things, it will cure your cancer, people would give me thousands of dollars. And now it comes in, <laughs> look, if you do this, this, and this, it'll cure. Oh, look, I've got it my I'll sort it out myself. Look, thanks anyway, Doc. <laughs> That's exactly what happens, mm. yeah. There's a big difference between abstinence and recovery, right? Mm. Abstinence is an event. Recovery is a process. So I can sit on my ass and be abstinent, but I'm not in recovery. I can sit on my ass and still be the disconnected, fearful, ashamed, lonely person that I was, except I'm not using. Mm. Or I can get into recovery and sort of get a life, basically, of meaning and purpose, which means I get where I fit in this world. And that's, um, you know, that spiritual connection. And, you know, the thing is, right, life is very dull without a spiritual connection of some sort. I believe the way the world's set up at the moment, it's boring. For example, a person goes to work eight hours, gets up in the morning, that's an hour and a half gone, goes to work for eight hours, in Auckland it takes an hour to get home. <laughs> By the time they get home, they have something to eat, they watch a bit of telly, they go to bed. Mm. Boredom is the biggest predictor of people using substances. They did this uh, experiment called a sensory deprivation experiment, and they basically put people in a straight jacket, white noise with uh, hissing in the ear so they couldn't hear anything, close their eyes so they couldn't see anything, put them in an environment where they couldn't taste or couldn't smell anything. Wow. Nobody, nobody would continue with the experiment, even no matter how much money they were offered because they're going so crazy. Mm. And so we need stimulation. So where I'm going with this was in Finland now, they've created these um, parks and that where people can do lots of things. And they're noticing a decline in addiction mm. because people have now got some things they can do so lack of purpose plays into addiction? Lack of purpose is huge, mm. absolutely. Like I was saying before, I listened to this TED talk recently where this guy who had studied addiction defined addiction as the opposite of connection. Yeah, isolation. Mm. That's another characteristic of, of addicts is that we're prone to is isolating ourselves. And can it work the other way? Can a sense of isolation or a lack of love and connection mm -hmm. move someone towards addiction? Oh, definitely. It's what triggers addiction. That's mm. what triggers the, the drug use, that you feel lonely and isolated and feel like you don't fit in, and you're looking in on this world that is all about social connection and people being with one another. So it's like you're sitting back watching a movie that you can't take part in. Mm. And those feelings can become more and more desperate and unhappy, so we, we want to be free of them. So we either take drugs or we kill ourselves. I mean, I, I've thought very seriously about it. I've made a plan to do it um, and kind of getting to the precipice and realising, actually, I'm not going to do it and I can't do it. Then the choice for me was, OK, well, then if I'm going to live, let's kind of live my best life and, and make the most of what's ahead of me. Because I think one of the things coming out of addiction and out of that whole hot mess and has been the key to my recovery is finding a sense of purpose. So finding out why I'm here, what is my purpose? And what I would say to you about people who relapse, I don't think that they've 
answer that fundamental question. What is my purpose? What is my purpose? And it might be to be the best mother in the world, mm. be the best mechanic, you know, whatever it is. But if they can't answer that question, eventually I see them get taken out. And this is not unique to addicts, is it? I mean, no. obviously it's, it sounds like it's heightened in addicts, but gosh, we've all got that journey, don't we? That where do I fit in? Where do I fit we in? We all have seasons of life where we're floating. We feel like a square peg in a world of round holes, you know, like... Yes. What am, I, yeah, what am I here for? And when we can't answer that, yeah, I guess all of us have the opportunity to fill that void with something. I agree, it's part of the human condition. Mm. And that's why we, all, all cultures, look for God in some form. And I think that that is to answer that fundamental question. And there's no one way to um, find your way there. There are as many ways as people, but I think it's really important for us to find that. I think addiction's going to get worse before it gets better. And why I think that is that our society, as a capitalist society, is geared up to perpetuate addiction. We're always encouraged to want the next best thing, not to be satisfied with what it is we have, to always be searching for better, for more. Mm. So in a sense, it's creating an emptiness within ourselves, trying to be fulfilled by external commodities. Mm. And that's exactly what addiction is. Addiction is filling up a gap within ourselves with an external commodity. In that case, it's alcohol, it's substances, it's food, it's gambling, it's mm. sex, it's internet, trying to fill up that gap. And our society is perpetuating. I think it needs to slow down and we need to be more accepting, tolerant and satisfied with what it is we actually have. Mm. Uh, and it just, it just really resonates with me and it makes me frustrated just hearing you talk about it because... We're living smack bang in the middle of a world that says, you're not enough until you have this. And we wonder why it breeds more and more addiction. Mm. And there's a lot of socially acceptable addictions out there, aren't they? And actually not just socially acceptable, but commercially driven addictions. Yep, I agree. But that might be for another podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> If someone's listening to this and they're in the middle of a battle with drug addiction, mm. what would you want to say to them? Surrender. Battles don't work. War doesn't work. Surrendering to what? Uh, surrendering to the fact for me that um, it's easier to have none than one. That there's millions of us who have been through exactly what you're going through now even though you may think this is you're the only person in the world this is happening to, I would strongly suggest that you reach out and just talk to somebody. Whether you ring the crisis team or whether you talk to your doctor or whether you go into an alcohol and drug service or whether you decide to ring up AA or any service that's available, Lifeline, something like that. The hardest thing you'll ever do is pick up that phone or talk to somebody you'll be desperately trying to work it out yourself. And all I can say is for me, I had to get some support from someone else. I so wanted to do it by myself, I just didn't, couldn't and wouldn't. So yeah, I just suggest that you talk to somebody, talk to somebody about it. Yeah. That there is a better life ahead and that actually anything is possible if you put down the drugs and find recovery. 
It's more than just putting down the drugs. It's learning how to be well and how to grow. That's the tricky bit. And I've realised through that that anything is possible. I'd like to say a big thank you to Susie, Anton and Grant for giving up their time and being so open and generous with their stories. I hope this episode has shown that addiction is treatable and recovery is possible. If addiction is something that you or someone you know struggles with, there are a number of services where you can find support. If you're in Aotearoa, New Zealand, a good starting point is the Alcohol and Drug Helpline on 0800 787 797. You can just chat to them about it and then they can put you in contact with other services. If you're interested in Narcotics Anonymous, you can contact them on 0800 628 632. Okay, so that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast. It really does help it get out there. And email me if you have any funding ideas. See you back here soon. And until then, have a mental week.